I'm going to read the Bible for us before Glenn comes to speak to us. So if you have a Bible, uh, could you open it up to 1 Thessalonians, and we're reading from chapter 4, from verses 13 to 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Uh, it's good to be here with you. I asked Ryan if I was overdressed, so he thought I was. So I'll take off my coat. And feel free to take off your coats. <laughs> I see you have. Uh, <laughs> this is a... An understated sort of bishop's colour, just sort of lilac. I'm colour blind, my wife chose this, so um, any complaints go to her. Let me pray before we look at this uh, great topic. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God over all the earth. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended Lord. We pray, Father, that you'd help us understand better today his reigning glory and his return to claim all that belongs to him. Father, help us with this, that we might have an expectation and a desire and a prayerful obedience as we await Jesus' return, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. This series, as Ryan said, is uh, been looking at the beliefs of evangelical Christians and the, the doctrinal statement for EU. And this is the last of uh, the statement, the expectation of the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You should have an outline there. And you'll notice that I've actually done it in reverse order of that long title. So we'll look at the expectation at the end, and we'll look first of all at the return of the Lord. The passage which was read out uh, speaks of this return of the Lord. Sometimes referred to as the return of Jesus. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. But it's also referred as the coming of the Lord. And this we can easily just overlook as just one of those sort of titles of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, certain people have had various titles, so that uh, you, you get in this, in this august institution, you get your professors, your associate professors, your chancellors, your most honoured uh, lecturers, and then your tutors. Um, and it's a whole range of titles that comes to people. And we tend to think of that Jesus has got the title Lord. And in actual fact, the word Lord is much more than a title, although it comes to us uh, from English culture, where you have uh, Lord this and Lord that, but it's really, Lord is a term of, of absolute governance, uh, lordship, king. I, I could have used the title Return of the King, but J.R.R. Tolkien had stolen that. Uh, the sense in which it's really King Jesus who's coming back. It's to do with Jesus as Lord over all. He is the one who's actually conquered uh, death. He's the one who's conquered Satan. He's the one who's conquered all evil. 
And it would be foolish for us to see the death of Jesus on the cross as merely satisfaction for sins, which it certainly is. It's a much greater canvas than that. So the death of Jesus and his resurrection, and the two come together, is the way in which Jesus is established as Lord. In Philippians you get that reference that uh, Jesus has given the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and that's the name of the Lord. In one sense you could argue that Jesus, in his humanity, is not Lord in his incarnation. That's a dangerous thing to say, but what it's saying is that Jesus becoming man as the God-man is the lordship of the God-man. The united, the, the union of the, the nature of Jesus in his humanity and his divinity which gives him the name of Lord. So that Jesus experiences something different in his resurrection from the dead and the attribute of being Lord over all things. And that's uh, an appellation that uh, God himself, the Father, has given to Jesus. Now the first thing is to recognise, if I just take you through some of these references, if you've got your Bibles you can flip through, otherwise you can just uh, note the uh, text and look them up afterwards. When Jesus left this earth, and what we call the Ascension, recorded to us in Acts chapter 1, uh, they ask him about when is he going to re uh, restore the kingdom of Israel. And there Jesus says, it's not you to know the times and seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. And he sends them on a, on a mission as it were, the power of the Holy Spirit is with him. And then he ascends into heaven. And then some angels are there. And, and the angel uh, speaks to the disciples, looking up into heaven, and says, Man of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here is this expectation of the return of Jesus, and it's the Lord Jesus, the one who is now going to heaven to sit at the Father's right hand. There's a certain amount of imagery with regard to that. The right hand of the Father is the place of authority and rule. And that uh, we find that in Psalm 110, where there's an expectation of the rule of God. And in Psalm 110, you'll see that in words which are expressed in the Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And there in the language of, of kingship, in Psalm 110, David speaks of the Lord speaking to my Lord. There are two Lords in that category. My Lord, the, the, um, uh, the, Lord, the Lord God, speaking to my Lord, the one to whom David puts his trust. There a reference to Jesus. And he speaks here prophetically of the reign of Jesus Till, sitting at the Father's right hand till he makes the enemies of God his footstool. So the reign of Jesus is there for a purpose. Uh, Peter, in his speech in Acts chapter 2, in verse 34, speaks in, the, in similar ways and picking up Psalm 110. And he talks about David didn't ascend into heaven. David's uh, grave is still here. If you were in Jerusalem in the first century, you could have found it. If you were brave enough, you could have dug it up. Uh, and found what was left. But nonetheless, David didn't descend into heaven bodily, but he speaks of him, but he speaks in this way, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make my enemies a footstool. So let all of Israel know, says Peter, that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice that. 
God has made him Lord. It's a new title which comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a title which gives him lordship over all things and it's a title which belongs to him forever and it's a title which is effectively demonstrating his rule from heaven over the whole cosmos. And the whole cosmos is such that the rule of Jesus is awaiting the final cataclysmic return of Jesus when he's going to wrap all things up together. So if you went to a text like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 25, it talks of uh, the end, the end of this world, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So there's an active reign of Jesus now. That the world actually belongs to King Jesus now, but we actually see forces of evil opposed to Jesus. That's our present situation, that's our present circumstance. So that uh, Satan is still exercising a certain amount of power on this world. He exercises a certain amount of persuasion in the lives of Christians when he tempts you to sin. And he exercises his, his uh, demonic persuasion over people who don't believe, who are not persuaded that Jesus is king and reigning on high. He's exercising that rule in a temporary, restricted manner, but Jesus is the true king. Jesus the true Lord. And his sitting at the Father's right hand is a demonstration of that rulership and lordship as not just Son of God in his divinity, but Son of God and Son of Man, if you like, in his humanity as well. He reigns on high and therefore provides us access into the Father's presence. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, there it speaks in, in, uh, in, in with similar language where uh, the writer of the Hebrew says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, then to wait until his enemies shall be made a stool for his feet. So the active subduing of the enemies of Christ is part of the present activity of Jesus. In one sense, all that is needed to do that has been accomplished in his death and resurrection. It's now the exercise of his rule as Lord of the universe, as the God-man ruling over this universe, that will then come to its final climax in his return. You need to understand that in order to understand the return of Jesus. It's not just the return of Jesus, it's the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the language of Christ, of course, is the... That, uh, Greek word which means anointed one. And uh, the Christ is the anointed one of God, just as King David was anointed. He's the anointed Hebrew word Messiah, Messiah to come and conquer this world and, as it were, reclaim it from the, uh, the forces of darkness, from the forces of evil, the powers that are at work in this world, the, the rulers of this present evil age, which will come to its climax when Jesus ends this age on his return. And the references there in Matthew 24, 3, which I'll skip, and uh, 2 Peter 3, uh, verses 4 and 8, which I'll read to you, which talks about this very climac this, uh, climactic uh, return. Where is the promise of his coming? 2 Peter 3, 4, some say. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago, 
and an earth formed out of water and by means of water through which the world was then exi existed and was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist have been stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is forbearing towards you, not wishing that any should repent, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. It's a very grave prediction, the coming of the end of this age. People mock about it. But the Bible speaks with it in such grave terms, such sombre language, because this is a matter of life and death, not just of personal individuals, but indeed of this present age as we know it. This, not only this lecture theatre, not only this university, not only this country, not only this world, but the whole cosmos is going to be renewed, refined and restored such that nothing short of a new heavens and a new earth will appear at the return of Jesus. It's the close of this age as we know it and the entrance of the new age in all its glory, uh, the age to come, of which we have a taste even now, but of which its fullness is yet to come. Well, the, uh, the return of the Lord is the return of King Jesus. It's a personal return. It's not just a symbolic return. It's not just a, a, a shift, as it were, uh, in eons. There is a personal element in it in that Jesus himself is going to come back. He doesn't just send angels to do his bidding, but he comes himself. And he comes in the context of destroying all enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed is death interesting. If you think in terms of uh, the fact that if Jesus died for us to save us from the penalty of sin, and death is the penalty of sin, why is it we still die? If Jesus has taken that penalty, how come death is still the normal, I say normal experience, there are a couple of people in the Bible who didn't have, who, did, who passed through death, uh, like Elijah and Enoch, the, the, the numbers are very few. Why is it we still die? Because the last enemy of death is yet to be defeated. It's as if Jesus has a program in train. We might think him slow in winding up this world, but there are reasons for that, and I'll come to that in point three. But Jesus has come to defeat death, and death is going to be swallowed up in victory. It is done principally in his resurrection from the dead, in his own breaking the bonds of death, rising to new life, unlike Lazarus, who died, who rose to die again and, and caused his parent, his family uh, two funeral services, uh, Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. Jesus breaks the bonds of death and he gives us that hope, but we haven't experienced that hope yet because unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, we shall physically die. But Jesus is going to come back in the defeat of death. That defeat of death is seen in the way in which it's when we die, we actually go to be with God straight away. We go to be with Jesus straight away. In one sense, yes, Jesus 
destruction of death has taken away what Paul describes as the sting of death. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Jesus has, as it were, cut from underneath us the, uh, the gravity of sin so that death has no fear for the Christian. Death has no fear because the sting of death has been taken. In other words, the penalty and the punishment and that which belongs to death in all its awfulness, namely the removal from the blessing of God for eternity, that has gone for the Christian. And if you're not a Christian, then you won't know that experience. To know that death has no fear for you. For the Christian, they know that the death has no fear. But death is a great fear for non-Christians because they have no certainty what will take place. They might have their certain hopes and aspirations of what might take place. They may even think in terms of annihilation and just a, and, and some, and, and, uh, uh, and, and a non-memory of events. And particularly before an exam, that might even be a, uh, an attractive possibility. But in terms of life, everlasting life, without the blessing of God, the removal of God's blessing, but rather receiving the judgment of God in an eternal state, that's what the gospel is all about. And the return of Jesus brings that to its reality. In Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5, he speaks this way. In, he talks about what happens after you die. And this is a question that many people ask and many people ponder. What actually happens to the Christian, we could also reflect upon the non-Christian, the Christian after they die? Now, some people think in terms of, uh, of soul sleep, for example. Some people think, look, what happens is you, when you die, you're put in the, in the, in the ground or an oven, uh, depending upon personal preference, and uh, then your, your soul goes to sleep, and the last day uh, your body's resurrected, either from ashes or uh, whatever the worms have got left, and there, the reunification of body and soul, and your consciousness doesn't skip a beat. So if you like, you have that soul sleep, and just like if last night you slept well, and you woke up this morning, uh, or this afternoon as the case may be, uh, you probably have no recollection of any difference between the time you uh, went to sleep and the time you woke up. Passage of time is, has taken place, but you've got no conscious realisation of that. That's what some people think. I don't think the Bible teaches that. Other people think there's some kind of time warp, whereby it's not so much a soul sleep, much has the same effect, but you wake up and it's resurrection day, and there you are. But the Bible actually teaches that when you die, you go to be with the Lord. That's what Jesus said to the thief on the cross, or to the believing thief on the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. That language of saying, this is, this is what's going to happen for you today. When Jesus said to his Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, he was talking about his spirit going to be with the Father on Good Friday night or afternoon. His body went into the grave. Interesting question to ask. Where was Jesus on Easter Eve? Where was he on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Day? Well, one answer is Jesus' body's in the tomb. We all know that. You could have found it. If, if the woman had got there early enough, it would still be still been there. But they couldn't because of the Sabbath. And by the time they got there, he'd, he'd risen from the dead. But his body was placed there on the Friday before the Sabbath, the Friday, the Friday evening, by Nicodemus and friends. But his spirit went to be with the Father. He actually experienced in himself the disjunction of body and soul. 
It is not a dualism in terms of Greek terms of, of body and soul, but it is a duality of which the Bible speaks. <coughs> Our wholeness is in body and soul. We've been made as one integrated being. But it's not that we are housed in this body in some kind of Greek form. No. This is us. I'm sorry for some people it's the best you've got. But nonetheless, this is us. This body is us. It's not just that we're inside this body. This body is us. We are body and soul. And what Paul reflects in 2 Corinthians 5 is, he reflects along these lines, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That's an experience that we're here on earth. In the, we are in body, in bodily experience. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That is, if he were to die, if there'd be a preference of actually being in heaven than being here. If you had your, if you had your druthers, that's what you'd rather do. But in actual fact, he speaks earlier in that passage, he says, we groan in this body, but we'd rather want to put on our heavenly dwelling. And the Greek word is a bit like the word pullover. That is, pull our heavenly dwelling over on top of us. That is the, the, um, the, the new body, the resurrection body. We're, we're waiting and looking forward to that anticipation. While we're in this tent, we sigh with anxiety. Not that we would be unclothed, which will be the intermediate state, but we'd be further clothed. And therefore, what happens is that the, the believers in Jesus at death go to heaven, go to be with Jesus in an intermediate state. Their body is in the ground, and their spirits with Jesus, in the same way in which Jesus experienced that disjunction between body and soul. So what you've got, and that's why you've got people in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, the description of the saints in heaven, they cry out, how long, O Lord? How long before you wind this world up? How long before we get our resurrection bodies? And the question how long tells you that heaven is temporal. All this nonsense saying that when you get to heaven, time won't exist. That's nonsense. Time is part of created reality. God's outside of time. We'll still be in time. Doctor Who notwithstanding. And therefore, we will still be creatures of time. And that's why they cry out, how long? You know, it's not as if someone says, come on, don't you know, there's no time up here. You don't have to ask those kind of questions anymore. No, how long before we come to the completion of all that God has in store for us? That's why those in heaven are awaiting their resurrection bodies, which they'll get at the last day. You'll see this in 1 Thessalonians 4, coming back now to the passage which we had read before us as we started. In 1 Thessalonians 4, you'll find the very interesting reflection about these very issues. Verse 13, We wouldn't have you ignorant, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep. The language of being asleep is a way of describing the people who have died. Those who are asleep. And the use of the word sleep is because it's not the end for them. It's not even the end for these bodies. So when you go to a funeral of a Christian, it's not the end of that body. You will see that body again raised in perfection at the last day. Don't grieve as others do who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will, notice, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, if God's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep, they're already with him now. 
Notice, he brings with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. There was obviously some discussion in Thessalonica as to, well, if you were alive when Jesus came back, you'd have a head start getting to heaven. You wouldn't have to wait to sort of you know, wake up from the dead, so to speak. But no, Paul says it's not that way. We're not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, what does that mean? If he's just said God's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep and then the dead in Christ rise first, it can only mean their bodies rise and they're going to be reunited with their souls, their spirits that have been in heaven since their physical death and they'll be reunited. And at that reunification, then those who are left on the earth who will, who will then go to, the, uh, to heaven, go to be with Jesus and will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet. In 1 Corinthians, Paul describes this. And we won't pass through death, but our bodies will be changed. Mortality will be overtaken by immortality. And that which is flesh and blood, which can't inherit the kingdom of God, will be transformed and renewed and will be given new bodies. The Bible describes them as spiritual bodies. And the word spiritual body isn't supposed to capture uh, the concept of Casper the ghost that kind of spiritual body. If you think of a spiritual body, think of steam engine. If you think of a steam engine, you don't think of an engine which is composed of steam, do you? But you think of an engine which is powered by steam. Or think of an electric motor. An electric motor isn't just you know, sparks and, uh, and flashes of current going everywhere. It's actually a solid body which is powered by electricity. Likewise, a spiritual body. A spiritual body is a body which is corporeal, is that for me? Uh, a body which is substantial, which is fashioned for the new heavens and the new earth, but which is empowered in, by, the, by the Spirit of God. The dead in Christ rise first. Well, why is this so important? It's part of God's victory over death. The last enemy death will be defeated at Jesus' return, when death shall be no more when he shall wipe away every tear, when sin shall be no more in the new heavens and the new earth. And it is because of this expectation which is held out for the people of God, an expectation which is given in promise for, that, for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus that brings an urgency to the expectation of Jesus. It's not just that we should be uh, speaking of Jesus' return, but we should be speaking of Jesus' return with urgency in our voice. Because as I read that passage from, uh, from Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we don't know when Jesus is going to return. What Jesus has not given us is a timetable. He's given us the fact that he's going to return and he's given us his word that he will return. And the word of promise that Jesus will return is, as, is more certain than the sun rising tomorrow. In fact, Jesus could return this night. And if you've got an assignment due tomorrow, that would be very convenient. <laughs> I remember my wife apologised to me. She repented. We had a 12-month engagement period and she actually prayed that Jesus wouldn't return before we got married. I don't know how God honoured that, uh, that prayer, but nonetheless, the sense of urgency of Jesus returning 
is such that this moves us to evangelism. If you believe that Jesus is going to come back again, and if you're a Christian, certainly an evangelical Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, then you know that to be true. How important then the persons whom you do not know, who do not know Jesus, know from you that Jesus is going to call them to account. He's going to call them to account for the kind of life that they've lived. He's going to call them to account for the way in which they've, they've put Jesus in their life. They're going to, he's going to call them to account to, as to whether they've recognised that he is indeed Lord King over the whole cosmos. Over every part of creation, Jesus is Lord. No matter what new stars they, the scientists may find, that belongs to King Jesus. And the importance for us is that that Jesus is going to come back to this planet and claim his people for his own and he will destroy those who do not believe in him. He will destroy those who have not followed him. The gospel is to be preached throughout the whole world before Jesus returns. You'll find that in Matthew 24 verse 14. That reason for the delay of which we saw in Peter's epistle is so the gospel might be fully preached throughout the world. And that's where we find ourselves. Jesus is in the process of wrapping up his enemies, the final enemy to destroy being death. And in that process, the time that we have here is to proclaim Jesus' lordship. The heart of the gospel is actually Jesus' lord. That's the, that's the prime uh, statement of the gospel, that Jesus is lord through his death and resurrection. In that death and resurrection, he's, he's accounted for the sins of his people and he offers us new life. But it's the lordship of Jesus that enables that to take place. It's because Jesus is the Lord that he's going to return to, as it were, finish and, and fulfil all this death and resurrection captured in principle. And that wrap-up, that wind-up, will be the last day. Well, that famous passage in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, Whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. goes on in verse 7 then to say, For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But at the same time, we read in, in John chapter 5, verses 28-29, Don't marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. This time, not just the Christians in the tomb, but anyone who's died... And they shall come forth, those who have done good, the resurrection of life, those who have done evil, the resurrection of judgment. So the dangers of rejecting Jesus are grave. The dangers of rejecting Jesus are very real. It is a matter of not just life and death, but eternal life and eternal death. The last words of the book of Revelation says, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, but let the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, says Jesus, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And the response of John is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. 
That should be our prayer. A prayer that Jesus would come and soon and that we ourselves will be ready for him when he comes. That we'd be ready if this hour, before this hour should conclude, Jesus should return, that we would find ourselves ready. Having put our faith in him and known him to be our Lord. But also, the delay of Jesus, as I said, is that the gospel might be preached throughout the world. And our part in promoting that gospel, in providing means, whether by money or by mouth, by life or by death, that we might promote the name of the Lord Jesus, who is indeed the one true Lord over all things, and who is promised, and of whose word we are certain, will return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That gives us, on my reckoning, five minutes for questions. Is that right? Yes? Um, so you mentioned that when we die, our soul goes straight to heaven. Correct. So does that mean um, if for those who aren't Christians, their soul goes straight to hell, straight up to death? Correct. Um, and then also, does that mean that there's a form of judgment that actually occurs before judgment day? Correct. Um, you remember the parable of uh, Lazarus and rich man? Yep. Uh, although it's a parable, it also speaks of realities, even though it might be in parabolic form. And the realities are that there's a conscious existence between death and resurrection. Uh, there is also a suffering taking place for, for the, um, uh, for the uh, rich man. In, in Jude, it talks about uh, keeping the, uh, the evil angels in the nether gloom, uh, under judgment. There's a sense in which God is whole, it's a holding place of judgment, which is also a place of suffering. But it is, it is, it is a disembodied state. So that uh, everyone who dies leaves their body behind. But at resurrection the last day, everyone will get a new body, some to resurrection to life, some to resurrection to death. And that's why death and hell is an eternal category and there is a body fit for that so that their worm will not die. And that sense in which there's an eternal judgment of God up, upon them. Now that is slightly different. It's, it's an embodied state as opposed to the intermediate state where there is still a separation of heaven and hell, if, if, if hell is the right word to describe it, a place of, of judgment, a place of separation from the presence of, of the blessing of God and that will continue in an embodied state after the last day. And that's why it's called the second death. Okay? Yep. Yes? After, after all this happens and we're resurrected and stuff, what happens to us then? Do we come back to Earth in the new heaven and the new Earth? Like, do, or do we just stay in the new heaven? Or, or I'm hoping there'll be lots of travel permits, uh, personally. <laughs> um, the way in which Revelation talks about the new, the new Jerusalem coming down to Earth, so I think there is good reason to believe it will be a replenished earth, a restored and renewed earth. The new heavens, the new earth, is that this will be the locale of the kingdom of God. I take it that's what's to be there. Uh, the, it's probably not as clear as we might like it to be. Our curiosity always gets the better of it. We want to know exactly what it's going to be like. But I take it the wonderful thing about heaven is it won't be boring and we won't be exhausted. In other words, uh, one of the good things about... See, we won't be sleeping in heaven. Uh, sleep is a matter of this age. 
See, even in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve slept. Even for Adam and Eve, there was a prospect of an eschatology, a final state, a new state, if you like, going from the garden to the city, that, that kind of concept. Adam and Eve had temptation, will have no temptation. Adam and Eve had the possibility of sin, will have no possibility of sin. Adam and Eve grew weary, we won't grow weary. They shall run and not be weary, walk and not faint. So therefore heaven will be an exploration of the revelation, the ongoing revelation of God. And so when the, when the angels cry out, holy, 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 they're not just uh, rehearsing the same old song, so to speak, they've been doing for a couple of millennia and trying to get it right, but rather they're responding to fresh revelation. So as God reveals himself to them, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And they can't help but respond to the magnificence of God's glory, which will be unending for us because God is infinite. We're finite. We're the creature. He's the creator. We will never exhaust the knowledge of God. Therefore, heaven will never be boring. It will be an exciting roller coaster of, of growing in the knowledge of God. And who knows what's in store for us in that, in terms of exploring this earth that he's made for us for our enjoyment. That's what's in store. Worth going, isn't it? Um, um, yes. Uh, judgment day is the last day. I mean, the word day is probably not necessarily a 24-hour period of time, but the judgment day is the last day. The archangels call, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise, and judgment, the book, the judgment books will be opened, and those who are in Christ will go to be with the Father and the Son, and those who are not in Christ will be judged accordingly. So that day of judgment is the separation, if you like, in the parables of Jesus of the sheep from the goats. Okay? In the book of Revelation, that's the second death. So the language in, um, uh, if you look in terms of Revelation uh, 20, verse 11, where the great white throne of him who sat upon it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, the book of life. So that's when the judgment takes place. Okay. Yes. I was going to ask you about 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, where it talks about um, those all that will be caught up together with, the, with them in the clouds. Yes. To meet the Lord in the air. Do you want to um, explain what it's talked about? Well, I take it that when Jesus comes back again, we're, we're going to be transformed, our bodies. See, our bodies won't inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood doesn't inherit the kingdom of God. But there'll be a continuity between this body, which, which is us, and, and the body which we have in, in heaven. The same way with Jesus. There was continuity, but discontinuity. So that continuity for us will be that the, um, the descriptive, the descriptor and the metaphor there is that we're, we, we, Christ is in, in, the, in, the, in the sky, in the heavens. The dead in Christ rise. They're reunited with him. We then are taken up to be with him. And, and from there, that's, when, that's the new heavens the new, and the new earth begin. I take it in terms of chronology... You've then got the judgment of the earth. We'll be spectators that judgment of the earth and the judgment and, and the, the wicked, uh, the living and the dead. And then we will, in terms of revelation again, the, the Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the church, will come down to a restored and, and renewed heaven. Uh, sometimes people use the word rapture to describe that term. Uh, the rapture, which is, for one better term, the sense in which you, you're taken up to be with God and you're changed. In some theologies, dispensational theology, that rapture is before a thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth. I'm, I don't 
but I don't think the scripture supports that interpretation. But if you can use the word rapture for that final, that final cataclysmic um, statement. I mean, in America they sell little stickers on cars. You, I remember sitting in a car once in the passenger seat saying, beware that the driver could disappear at any, any instant. Sort of a worry when you're <laughs> driving with someone. You thought the driving was bad enough as it was. And, uh, but that sense in which the imminent return of Jesus, yes, that's true. We, when Jesus returns, mind you, when Jesus returns, everyone's going to know. It won't come by surprise. No one's going to say, who is that? He'll be self-authenticated. Yes. The rapture or the rapture? The rapture. Uh, I want a rapture or the rapture. Um, the rapture is a, is language which can be used in two ways. In in what I might call mainstream Christianity, the rapture is the return of Jesus when those who are left uh, on earth. You can read that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. That rapture of being uh, those who are left on earth will be changed and meet the Lord in the air. Those who are left on earth who don't believe in Jesus, then they will receive the judgment in the body. And I take it they'll receive resurrection bodies also uh, in, in, uh, in accordance with the place where they're going. But there's also the use of the word uh, rapture in what's called dispensational theology. And a dispensational uh, theology, which is not very common in Australia, it's uh, much more common in America, for example, which talks about a secret rapture that Jesus is going to come and zap up people and there's a whole set of books, you know, uh, expounding this uh, in, in America. The, the Hal Lindsey book, The Late, Late Great Planet Earth, in the 70s, uh, spoke of this too in, in a very popular fashion. There'll be a secret rapture of Christians, so you look around and suddenly uh, your Christian friends won't be there. And if you're a Christian, you'll be wondering just why, why they're not there. I read a... Um, I read a they had, in, I lived in America for a while, they actually used to sell car stickers. And there's a sticker they put on the, um, on the dashboard with the passenger seat saying, beware, the driver of this car should dis could disappear at any moment. <laughs> Bit of a worry. Uh, so that sends him to secret rapture and then there's a thousand year reign. I haven't talked about the millennium. It's only referred to once in the Bible uh, in Revelation 20. And they refer to a thousand year reign where you have a secret rapture in the reign of Jesus on earth for a thousand years and then comes the end. Since I don't believe that reflects the Bible's teaching, I didn't go into it. Yes? Uh, good question. We don't know exactly what the state is. Uh, we know it's not, an, it's, not, it's not a resurrection body state. Uh, what, what do you see? The problem is, if God is invisible, how do you see God in heaven? It's a hard question, isn't it? Uh, for those who've done philosophy one, you remember the, the story of the person who's um, talking about body and soul. The person who lives, whose his spirit comes up from his body, and he sees you here, and he sees his body below. And the question comes with what does he see the body below? Since the eyes are below. Uh, has he got a, you know, a remote camera? Uh, so, therefore, there's a whole sensory area of which we do not have a great deal of knowledge. 
uh, angels have some kind of body. The Spirit, Holy Spirit has no body that we know of, yet the Holy Spirit is a person. How does a person, how do you embody a person, to use that metaphorical language? In terms of Luke's Gospel, I think the, the import of that parable is the fact that even if someone should, should rise from the dead, uh, the brothers of Lazarus wouldn't believe. That's the import of the parable, of course. But it does show uh, that there's a divide. It also shows that there is penalty taking place, punishment taking place, before the end of the world in the intermediate state. The parable would have no meaning at all if there was no intermediate state. So therefore that puts pay to the soul sleep view. Um, you know, it's not like Lazarus saying, wake up, wake up. Uh, no, there's consciousness there. And, but, it, but whether we'll actually be able to see the divide, and clearly even there's metaphor even the way Mr. Richman says, dip his finger. Uh, it's a way of saying, give me some relief. Uh, we, we use metaphor all the time. You know, when I say, you know, have a heart, it's not, you're not saying that actually they're missing something anatomically, uh, but rather it's a, it's a way of describing things. And, and the Bible uses ordinary human language at that level. So we don't want to draw too much from that, at a, at, a, at a physical, literal level, but the fact that there is consciousness and communication at both levels, in heaven and in hell, indicates that you've got that. How that is done without a, shall I say, without a resurrection body? There may be some kind of sensory body which is given, uh, as it were, some kind of temporary equipment that God gives. Uh, we don't know. The same is problem, problematic with regard to on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah came down. Now, it's a good question to ask, how did Peter, James and John recognise of Moses and Elijah? You know, it was the first church name tags that they had. Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that where it all comes from? Uh, no. They, they hear the conversation. They know what's taking place. Now, what kind of bodies did they have? It's all right for Elijah. He kept his body. But what about Moses? You know, buried out there in Mount in Moab somewhere. Uh, so, therefore, for the sake of the exercise, they're given a body to present themselves as Jesus. So, God's, God's not... You know, tightly cornered like that, where we'd like to have things wrapped up. There's obviously things there which he hasn't told us, which we uh, we recognise, and perhaps those answers will come when we get to heaven. Yeah. If you can show me that verse, I'll happily respond to it. But I don't think the verse actually says it like that, is it? It does say that those who are alive at the coming of Jesus, will not fall asleep. That's what it says. But there's nowhere Paul says, some of you will not. Unless you're thinking the reference in, in Mark's Gospel, it talks about this generation will not pass before these things take place. But I think that's a reference to the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus rather than the last, the last day. But if, you, if you've got the verse you're thinking of, and you can find it, I'm happy to interact with that. Yes? Um. You posed the question before, like, where, is, where was Jesus on Easter Saturday? And you said that his body was in the tomb and his spirit was with the Lord. Correct. In the Apostles' Creed, it asserts that Jesus descended to hell or to the place of the dead. Correct. Have you any thoughts? Can you kind of elaborate on that? Yes, certainly. Uh, when did Jesus descend to hell? He descended to hell on Good Friday. That's when he descended to hell. What is hell? Hell is the place of God's punishment. Hell is the place of the separation of the blessing of God. The problem for Jesus on the cross is he is both the beloved and the accursed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you bringing the wrath, your wrath upon me on this cross? So at the end of his time on the cross, he says, it is finished. He doesn't say, oh, to be continued. <laughs> 
Therefore, the, the satisfaction for sins is complete on the cross. His descent into hell is on the cross. Because into your hands I commend my spirit. I'm sorry, I'm taking a detour. And if you want to think about the passage in 1, Timothy, in 1 Peter 3, which talks about Jesus speaking to spirits in prison, that's another lecture, but he only speaks to people in Noah's day, which tells you he's not, that reference isn't talking about Jesus going to hell in the first century. He's talking about preaching to people in Noah's day, but we haven't got time to explore that. Yes, you got on the timeline? Yes. Was there a question there? Uh, well, why does Jesus say um, to Mary after his prison in his body, don't touch me, I'm going to my father. Right. But then when he is with the disciples, let him touch you. Good question. You know, says to Thomas, touch me. Mary, don't touch me. You know, you know what, what's, what's going on? What he's saying, the word touch in that is, uh, is a way of saying, don't hold me here. You cannot keep me here. It's not a matter of don't touch me like that. It's a matter of don't hold me. And, you, and the Greek will, will, will help explain that. But so there is just not, a, not very well translated. So don't, you know, she seems that, oh, I've got him back. He's mine, as it were. I can keep keep relationship going on earth like we normally had before this awful death, which interrupted things. No, 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 I must go to my father. Okay? Last question. What are we doing in heaven? Wonderful question, because it sounds like it's going to be boring, doesn't it? <laughs> it does sound that. And you think, look, here are these angels singing out, glory, glory, glory. You know, they've been rehearsing for centuries. <laughs> and uh, holy, 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 we've got it right, Chad, let's try it one more time. Okay, hold. no. When the angels cry out holy, they're responding to fresh revelation. God is revealing himself afresh Hour after hour, day after day, it'll be an exciting vista of learning. We'll never exhaust God's, God's omnipotence. We'll never exhaust God's character. We'll never exhaust God's knowledge because there'll always be a creator-creature distinction. Our limitations are, are, are not matched by God's non-limitations. So therefore, the learning of God will take us into eternity and it'll be joyful and full of excitement, and there'll be things to do. It's not going to be lazy time. Sabbath rest doesn't mean inactivity. It means non-tiring activity. For well, walk and not run, and not, and not what be weary, run and not faint. That's the excitement of heaven. So anything but boring and enjoyment beyond all your expectations, forever and ever, and keeping learning and sharing that with the fellowship of God's people. Bring it on.